Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Corology, a podcast on belief in being. This is episode 34. Well, the moment you think you're not racist anymore, you don't understand racism. Some of you are probably thinking, I have heard this before. And if you're thinking that, you are right. This is a repeat episode of my interview from episode three with Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Um, as many of you can probably tell, uh, my voice is a little bit rough. I, at the QCF conference a couple weekends ago, my voice completely gave out, um, and I had laryngitis for all of last week. Uh, just came back last Saturday, uh, still recovering, as y'all can hear. Um, and so I had to postpone and reschedule all of the interviews that I had scheduled for this week. Uh, no backups, because the season of life that I am in is currently recording this podcast week by week. Um, so this episode with Dr. D'Angelo... I think is vital listening. Uh, I have said this again and again and again on the podcast. If you've been listening for a while, you may be tired of me saying this again and again, but I think everybody needs to listen to this episode. Um, Next week, uh, just so that y'all can get a little bit excited, next week, if all goes as planned, if I don't get laryngitis again... Um, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dr. R. Marie Griffith. Uh, she is one of the world's foremost scholars on religion, gender, sexuality, um, and her new book is called Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. Uh, we're going to be sitting down talking about that book, talking about the history of the queer Christian movement. Uh, and a bunch of other things. I'm so excited about this episode. Um, so excited to sit down with Dr. Griffith. Um, so be watching for that next Tuesday if all goes as planned. So Dr. Robin D'Angelo, uh, she is a scholar in critical race theory. Um, uh, if you've ever heard the term white fragility, um, it was Dr. D'Angelo who coined that term. Uh, she's the author of the book, What Does It Mean to Be White? Developing White Racial Literacy, and the forthcoming book that's coming out this summer called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. Uh, in this episode, I sit down with Dr. G- D'Angelo and talk about what racism looks like in the queer community, um, what critical race theory is, and how um, intersecting privilege and marginalization, uh, they work together and they don't necessarily give us a pass, though, on racism as well. Um, 
If you've already heard this episode, listen again. If you haven't heard it, you're in for a treat. Such good information. So grateful that Dr. D'Angelo sat down. Uh, and, and if you're curious about Dr. D'Angelo does, and, and this was brought up when this orig- when this episode originally aired, the way that she self-identifies, um, there was some question about that, um, especially with bisexual people, um, because, because you'll notice that um, she identifies as bisexual, but is in a straight relationship, so often identifies as straight as well. That's up to Dr. D'Angelo to, to identify however she wants. Some bisexual people did reach out after the episode and say, hey, what about bisexual erasure? Um, so I, I have a conversation with in, in episode nine um, with Rosemary Jones about that exact issue, about that exact question. Rosemary is in a straight passing relationship, does identify as bisexual, and we flesh that out a little bit. Um, and what, what does it mean to self-identify? So that's a really good episode as well. If you're looking for another episode to listen to, head over to episode nine of season one with Rosemary Jones. Uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Dr. D'Angelo, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so to start, and this is a question I, I usually ask everyone, uh, but how do you identify uh, and how has your faith uh, formed those identities? Well, I identify definitely first and foremost as white and then as a cisgender female, um, as raised poor and working class, but currently middle class, able-bodied. Um, and I was raised Catholic. I am not currently um, in any faith tradition. And yet, of course, I believe deeply that your foundational socialization is always shaping you. So I can't say that being raised Catholic, particularly because um, the Italian immigrants who raised me were pretty devoutly Catholic, that that will likely always be with me. My primary identity growing up was heterosexual. Uh, I met and fell in love with a woman in my late 20s and spent the next 10 years or so in primarily uh, in partnerships with women and identified as lesbian, although I clearly am bisexual. It was just less complicated, as I think some of your listeners may understand. And now I am currently partnered with a man who uh, I consider to be my life partner. And so I don't identify as bisexual, not because I'm not, but because it doesn't feel authentic to me, given how deep um, heterosexual privilege is, and that I live my life in a heterosexual relationship. And it feels a little disingenuous to, to, you know, want to kind of take up this other identity. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're talking about racism and whiteness and and kind of concepts that can be really hard for us white people to grasp sometimes. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about your story, how you've gotten into this work and some of the key things that you've realized um, about yourself and about whiteness in general. That's a great question. Thank you for letting me lay that foundation. And as I tell this story, some of the key things I've come to understand will be woven in. And the first is that I really 
think that progressives are the most difficult around the topic of racism. And when I say progressive, I don't mean are you Republican or Democrat, but just this sense of open-mindedness, right? And I was a classic Seattle progressive. And I applied for a job as a diversity trainer. And Honestly, on some level, thought, well, I'm a vegetarian, so of course I'm qualified, <laughs> and of course I'm not racist. I, you know, I'm a vegetarian. Um, and I'm being a little facetious, but on some level, really, it was that kind of, you know, I shop at Trader Joe's, you know, so, you know, I'm not racist. And that actually was the most profound learning of my life was for the first time, my worldview was being challenged by a significant number of people of color. Because that, that, that project I applied for and, of course, was hired for because lots of other white progressives got to determine my qualifications, as is usually the case. I was completely unqualified, all right? But, of course, I got the job because I'm white <laughs> uh, and so nice. Uh, and part of being white is that I could actually be a full educated adult at that time I was in a relationship with a woman uh, so really saw myself as progressive and yet never had my worldview been challenged racially I wouldn't have even been able to tell you I had a racial worldview and all these people of color that I was working with day in and day out were definitely uh, holding a mirror up and saying, you have a racial worldview and a racial experience. So that was part one. And part two of that process was then we went forth into the workplace and tried to talk to primarily white groups of employed people about racism. And it, it, it was incredible, the the fragility, the Anger, hostility, resistance, irrational, delusional claims of reverse discrimination when you're in a room filled with employed white people complaining about nobody can get a job anymore. So these two things coming together, kind of relentless being challenged and called in by people of color and then relentlessly trying to talk to white people, I began to put the pieces together. And I realized that probably the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights was to make being a good moral person and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. So you actually – racism became bad and only bad people were racist and since – I was good and I was against racism and I was not aware of any conscious dislike. I could not be racist. And that's that's the definition the average white person has. Trust me, it'll come up in the responses to this program. And um, and therefore, if you suggest that anything about me has anything to do with race um, or that I've done anything racially problematic, I'm going to hear a question to my very moral character. And then I will need to defend my moral character. And that's why I think actually white progressives are the most difficult. Um, one, we think we're good to go. We're down. We've been exempt from all of this. And that's where our energy is going to go to making sure you understand that we're down <laughs> and good to go. And none of our energy is going to be going to what it needs to go to for the rest of our lives, which is continual self-awareness, reflection, analysis, engagement, interruption, accountability, and so on. Right, right. 
Yeah, that highlights uh, a piece that I feel like is so common, especially I've noticed in the queer community of where we identify with one specific marginalized identity and assume that because we hold that identity, we can't marginalize others or we can't be racist. We can't, we're, because I'm gay, I am a good person. I, I know what it's like to be marginalized. I know like blah, blah, blah. Yes. When that is a related in yet entirely separate issue at the same time. Yes. And interestingly, where we are in dominant culture, so where we are in the norm, where we are swimming with the current in the water rather than against it. So as queer people, we're swimming against the current. But as white people, we're swimming with the current. And one of the privileges of swimming with the current is that you are not reduced to to that identity. You get to be an individual, right? And so that becomes something to which you feel entitled. It is a very precious ideology of dominant culture. Now, where you're not swimming with the current, you're always labeled. So you're always going to be the gay guy, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you, but not the white guy, right? And so one of the one of the ways that we get our backs up, and again, it, as you'll notice in people's white people's responses to what I'm saying, is that I'm challenging individualism. I'm actually not granting white people individuality. I actually am. Yes, I want to be really clear to all your listeners. I am proceeding as if I could know something about you just because you are white. And that is because we live in a society together that conditions us together. I doubt any any queer identified person would deny that gender socialization is profound, right? That it, that's what it's all about is this that binary and how relentless it is. And so perhaps we feel we can say some general things about cisgender people or about heterosexual people and what they're able to take for granted regardless of other aspects. But it's very difficult when we want to apply it to ourselves. So I want to say that about um, individualism. But a really key learning for me was that I – I had spent my life thinking deeply about how I had been oppressed, right? Because I was raised female, Catholic, and poor. So what are the messages of those three identities? Be silent, be subservient, suffer, martyr, invisible, disappear, do not use your voice, do not question authority, right? Those, those are deep messages I got as a little... Catholic girl. Uh, now, those, those messages set me up beautifully to collude with racism because they're going to keep me silent. They're going to keep me from avoiding conflict. They, keep, they have kept me in my life very focused on my outrage about those things, right? My, my in, sense of injustice about patriarchy and sexism, you know, and classism. And I could tell you so much about how those things work, but never, ever had I examined whiteness, or, or my ability status, or, right, any of those things. Um, and so, 
what I've come to realize is I'm not less racist because I was raised in any of those ways. I learned my racial position differently than a white middle-class female learned hers, but I still learned it. And I realized as someone who came late to academia, again, grew up, grew up in poverty, didn't go to college till I was in my thirties, had no idea, you know, it was just a foreign culture to me. And now I'm in academia and, you know, I have a sense of an imposter, you know, deep inside me. I'm a very accomplished within academia and yet inside, you know, you're like, okay, day late and a dollar short, right? Um, and you sit, I've sat there in those faculty meetings where, you know, it's almost all white always. And we're discussing something and it, it's so clear to me that there's there's racism in how we're discussing it or the impact of, of the decisions we're going to make is, you know, and that there's there's a whole perspective missing, right? And yet I feel really intellectually inferior often in academia, right? Based on my internalized sexism and my internalized classism. So I sit in those meetings in silence, even though I'm noticing racism and I'm feeling unsettled about it. And my silence really is coming from a place of inferiority, right? It's not coming from a place of superiority. And yet I had to step outside myself and ask, well, how is it functioning? How is your silence right now functioning in this room? Oh, my God. (laughs) You're colluding with racism. You're maintaining white solidarity. You're going to look like a team player and you're going to get ahead precisely because you're not challenging racism. And and that is not acceptable to me. So when I realized that, I thought two things. You know what? You're as smart as these people. Okay. <laughs> That's a lie that you are not as intelligent or, you know, just because you were raised in poverty. It's a lie that because you're a female, Right. Um, And so when you push through all those lies within yourself that you have internalized and you use your voice to challenge racism, you're simultaneously healing the lie of your inferiority while using your privileged position to interrupt racism. And so for me, it's like a phenomenally powerful way to use my position. I I don't believe that centering racism denies my oppression at all. I think centering racism has been a a powerful way to address all of it. So, no, it does not cancel out or exempt us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you used the term dominant culture. Uh, For someone who maybe isn't familiar with that term or is taken aback by it, how, how would you go about unpacking that for someone? Well, again, I, I would find it difficult for any listener who who identifies as queer or or, or Christian, let's say that, yeah. would have trouble identifying that there's a dominant culture and it's heterosexual and Christian. Yes, fair, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so, dominant culture is heterosexual, right? The mm-hmm. assumption is that everybody's heterosexual. It's relentless in language, in law right, Uh, in legitimacy, right, in all of these ways, it is relentless. And it is, heterosexuality is the norm by which everything else is a deviation, right? And it's that backdrop that isn't named. And so is whiteness, right? Um, The white people are born into a society that from the moment we open our eyes is relentlessly giving us messages 
that we are inherently superior, um, that we are basically the norm for humanity. And again, I'm hoping that your listeners can understand that maleness is the norm for a human, androcentrism, right? And, and anything else is a deviation from that. Um, heterosexuality is the norm for a human, and everything else is a less than deviation from that. And whiteness is the norm for human. And in my workshops, um, my goal is to make that visible, right? I mean, actually, white queer people have an incredible way in. The key is not to use it as a way out, right? So for me, because I'm a very angry feminist, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, my understanding of sexism and patriarchy has been such a useful way to understand racism. Not to exempt myself, as I'm sorry a lot of uh, white uh, women, cis women do, but to say, okay, I'm trying to figure out this piece of racism and I'm not getting it, right? I'm not getting why I just got this feedback. And um, so I imagine that a man has just said to me, what I'm thinking of saying to a person of color. And I immediately get it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, now I see it. So you can use that um, really well. So there's a question that I ask in my sessions. And um, there's a series. But one of them is, what are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life? Or races, if you're multiracial. Most white people answer that question, they pair up, and they begin to tell a story of their first cross-racial experience. So you can kind of imagine that, right? So you and I paired up and I say, well, you know, when I was five, I had this little friend. I didn't even notice she was black. Um, and then one day, my dad said this thing, right? Mm. I mean, can you imagine that's kind of how oh, we – absolutely. Or, gosh, just the other day or – what we tend to do in answer to the question, what are some of the ways in which your race has shaped your life, tell about a cross-racial experience. I want you to notice that's not answering the question. That's not the question. Uh, that cross-racial experience that I may have had at five is not how race has shaped my life. Okay, But what it reveals is how deeply we define race as what's happening when they are present. And if they are not present, race is not happening. When I go to dinner in Ballard tonight, I'm going to think race isn't happening unless a black man walks into the restaurant and now race is happening, right? Uh, no, it, it's teeming with race. Uh, it's, just, it's just the water, right? The way we should be answering that question is, well, even before I was born, the forces of race were operating on me and shaping the trajectory of my future life. So what transportation, education, nutrition was available to my mother? Uh, what environmental safety did she carry me in? Where did she deliver me? Who delivered me? How was she treated? Uh, who owned the hospital I was delivered in? And who came in that night and mopped the floor and took out the garbage? I was born into a racial hierarchy. And in the same way, I used to be a childbirth educator, and I can't tell you how many couples would come in and say, oh, we had an ultrasound. And I'd say, why? Was there an indication of a problem? Oh, no. You know why they had an ultrasound. They want to know the sex of the baby. Why? So they can prepare, right? 
that even before that child is born, the forces of gender are operating on it. Even if you have progressive parents who are like, we're not going to do that. We're going yellow, not blue or pink. Good luck fighting off your friends and family. Good luck fighting off the television and the Happy Meal toy and Target toy aisles. Good luck, right? We, we understand that it's relentless. And so is whiteness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm remembering back to the first time uh, I was in a, a class on racism and the facilitator, uh, Dr. Hollins, asked us to think about, she asked the question, one was, the first time you ever realized that you had a race. Uh, and for me, like I'd never even thought about that before. Like, I, and I was what, 24, 25 at the time mm-hmm. and, and realizing, you know, like maybe it was like three weeks ago when I started reading for this class, whereas everyone else in the room who was a person of color mm-hmm. were telling stories of before my conscious memory, like of, in the disparity there of like, I've gone 25 years without noticing the color of my skin. And that is part of what it means to be white. That is, that is one of the ways that your race has operated because you're not in a culture in which everyone has access to that obliviousness or lack of awareness. And unfortunately, I think a lot of white people think because I've never thought about it, it has no relevancy. You not thinking about it is not neutral. It has consequences, and it certainly has consequences for how you're now going to come to the table when the topic is race. It has consequences for the people of color that have to interact with you. It has consequences for your ability to validate someone else's experience that isn't what you just said, right? All of these dynamics cause us actually to be kind of assholes when then – People of color try to talk to us about our whiteness. It's this funny thing that we think if we've never thought about something. And again, I'm I'm thrilled actually that we have this heterosexuality or heterosexism to draw from. A heterosexual person never thinking about being heterosexual. Would any queer person say, well, that means it's absolutely inoperative? Right. They'd say, yeah, and that's why you're (laughs) such a – so difficult and clueless and this is what I have to navigate and and, and let's talk about like trans trans uh, identified people and the you know just the frustration of trying to to guide cisgender people who can barely wrap their heads around it and I and I can identify with this because I'm trying to write in ways that don't reinforce that binary, right? And yet I can barely comprehend anything outside of it. It's so deep, right? And and I have a few trans friends who just, you know, thank goodness are patient, but it's it's at a huge draining cost to keep trying to get us to see something. So I'm trying what I'm trying to say here is one your lack of knowledge is not benign or neutral. Um, it actually did shape you in deep ways. It does allow us to say some things about what, how you're likely to come to the table, so to generalize. And it's a fabulous opportunity for your listeners to be able to use that identity, again, not to exempt or minimize, but to uh, reveal yeah. and illuminate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You... 
you mentioned how this can make us assholes at times. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think that's something from starting to enter some more spaces uh, with more people of color and noticing, just noticing responses uh, that a, white, a lot of white people get. And then the responses of the white people towards people of color when they're called out. Uh, and you, you coined this phrase, white fragility. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about like fragility and, and what, when we get so defensive. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes. And I want to, I want to take it like at a, at a deeper level, right? So, so it manifests as defensiveness, but how's it actually functioning? This is really key. The question that's always guided me because true faults, nature, nurture, I mean, these are deep questions we're never going to solve, right? I mean, even, even, sex, right? Is it nature or is it nurture? Can we, can we separate them? I don't know. I don't think so. And so since I can't know that, I certainly have my perspective on it. I think it's way more nurture than we're taught. Um, the question I always ask is how is it functioning? So for example, it's common for people to say, well, you know, it's just human nature. I mean, there's always been injustice and domination and someone has to be on the, on top. Uh, well, who's like more likely to say someone has to be on top in a, in a discussion of, you know, domination? Okay, I'm, I'm aware that these are also uh, phrases that can go <laughs> <laughs> some kind of sex positive uh, activities. But uh, let's just, you know, yeah. so yeah. – Who's more likely to say it's just human nature? Those who are on top or those who are on the bottom, right? People who are being stood upon rarely look up and say, gosh, you know, somebody has to stand on me. Might as well be you. That is the narrative of the dominator. The dominator. So um, I always want to think about, so how does that defensiveness function? So, so let's start with white people grow up in an insular, protected a fairly ob oblivious environment. And even the few white people who grow up, say, urban poverty, and they grow up in neighborhoods where they are around people of color, outside of that, the whiter culture is still relentless. They still know that they're white and that they can leave. And when they leave, they'll be in a better situation, right? So I grew up in poverty, but I knew that if I was going to have an upwardly mobile life, I wasn't going to be, I'd, I'd end up in white space which I have, right? So we grow up in this insular, rarely ever challenged, deep internalized superiority. I'm sorry, you cannot <laughs> miss the message of white superiority. And it is, it is not uh, conscious necessarily, but it is it is deep and relentless. And so so all of these, and then, and then this obliviousness and, at the same time, we're taught not to see or know it, but let's face it, we don't really want to see or know it because it could require something of us or it could challenge our identities as good people. Um, and it's, so at the same time that, that like you might say, right, you're telling me this example of when you were in that class, you really were oblivious, right? There is this really, this actual, oh my God. And on some level, you always knew it was better to be white, Totally. Didn't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, so did I. I always knew. We know. Right. And we also know that white people talk racist 
talk to each other. Yes. Any white person who came up to me and said, I've never in my entire life heard a racist comment or joke, I would just say, you're lying. I'm yeah, sorry. It's not true. Okay. So we, we in both these things, it's a both end. <laughs> we don't know and we do know, but can't admit to it. All this, and then individualism, and then arrogance, and then ignorance, and then insulation, it makes us really irrational and, and misinformed. Um, and so you challenge me, right? And it's going to throw me so off of my racial equilibrium, right? 24-7, I am comfortable as a white person in this society. 24-7. It is rare for me to be uncomfortable. So you make me uncomfortable racially, and I'm going to lose it, right? Some, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, just panic, anxiety, and I, I need that to stop. I need to get back onto my equilibrium, and I need, I will do whatever it takes uh, to back you off of me. Okay, if I need to cry, so everybody rallies around me. And then the person who gave me the feedback now becomes bad and I, I'm, you know, get all the resources back to me, I'll cry. If I need to get, you know, indignant, you know, um, I'll get indignant, right? If I need to shut down and go silent and then withdraw, I'll do it. Pretty much anything but engage with humility, okay? <laughs> for, I mean, for all the reasons I've just said can get to a place where you're able to engage with humility but it does take some work right we're not we're not socialized that that would be a natural response for us okay and so while it's fragile in and weak in the sense that i can't tolerate it it's actually incredibly powerful in its impact and effectiveness to police people of color back into place so I think my inability to handle it, my white fragility, actually functions as a form of bullying. I'm going to make it so miserable for a person of color to call me in on racism that they just won't do it. Trust me, people of color suck up microaggressions constantly and just don't bother. And why don't they bother? Because it's too hard because they're exhausted, because they need to get through the day. Uh, and so it's really powerful. And I think, I've been thinking about it lately as I'm not the 1%. <laughs> right? I'm not the 1%, but man, I can, I can control people of color through my white fragility, right? In my place, in my relationships, I can keep people of color in their place uh, through, through that. And so when you're in these spaces and people of color maybe think, okay, these people, they experience a form of oppression. They're going to get this and they take a risk and then we counter with defensiveness or, oh, yeah, 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 I already know that. Um, it, it, just, it just shuts them down. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as white people who are trying to do better um, – <laughs> I think a lot of times we'll realize a few things about ourselves and say, okay, now I'm not racist anymore because I know these things. I'm an ally. And then we enter spaces. Um, and I think a lot of times that also causes more harm than good also. 
Well, the moment you think you're not racist anymore, you don't understand racism. Um, because racism is not an either-or proposition. It's not um, dependent on your self-image. It's not dependent on your friendships. Um, it is a system that we are immersed in and that we navigate 24-7. And again, in the same way that I am not now free of gender, do you know what I mean? I might say I, I, I refuse to identify, I'm um, non-binary, but everything is always in relation to the relentless reality of having to navigate the gender construct, right? No one, I don't believe, would say I am free of all gender conditioning, all gender navigation, and certainly not a cisgender person. So let's go there, right? Because if we're talking white, you're now talking about a cisgender person telling you I am free of all gender impact. And would that be just uh, – is it clear that that's impossible? So that's the first thing that's happening. You just don't understand racism if you think that. You, you will never be free. I will never be free. Uh, I've committed my life. I do less harm. I'm more conscious. I've built relationships. And there are – some people of color who consider me to be a supportive person, and I step in it all the time. And um, probably the difference is I step in it a little less. I'm, I'm rarely defensive about it anymore, and I have really good skills at repairing it when I step in it. And that's what we can go for. Um, but in my lifetime, it's not going to end, and I'm not going to be free. Okay, one, two – I do not call myself an ally, and I do not even call myself an anti-racist white. I say that I'm involved in anti-racist work, um, but the reason I don't self-appoint myself as an ally is because I'm the least qualified to make that determination. I, I'm, I'm invested in not seeing racism, and, on, and, and put it another way, I'm invested in racism. How would I not be invested in racism? I am. Oh, my God, it works so well for me. I mean, the psychic freedom uh, that I don't – that I have, right, all of it. Um, now, I don't want those investments, and I committed to challenging them, but they're deep and they're wily, and I am not to be trusted. And the question, again, I think white people have to ask ourselves is how do you know? How do you know? Are you, are you in a relationship with people of color? Do you talk about racism? If you don't, why not? Do you think maybe <laughs> – I would offer for your consideration that you have indicated that you're actually not open. And so they're not talking to you about racism, and therefore the relationship's probably not as close as you think it is, right? Um, so um, while I don't call myself an ally, that is because it is for people of color to decide if in any given moment I'm behaving in allied ways. So notice a few key things. In any given moment, how am I doing? I'm not, you know, I marched in the 60s, so now I'm certified as free of racism for the rest of my life, right? But let's, since I said that, let's look at that for a minute. This is often the evidence. I marched in the 60s, and therefore I, ha you know, and I, I often facetiously say, damn, I wished I had marched in the 60s. <laughs> so then I would be certified as racist-free for the rest of my life. Even though we didn't even know race wasn't biological in the 60s, I'd still be certified as free of racism forever and ever. Do you see that? Do you think maybe, yes, people who marched in the 60s were not firehose racists. They weren't the KKK. 
they were against those forms of racism? Do you think maybe they were running some other subtle, martyr, white savior, arrogant, patronizing racism as they took over the movement, right? Um, so it's an ongoing process um, that is ultimately determined by peoples of color uh, in any given moment. And, and, and that also reminds me, one, that it has to be demonstrated, uh, and two, that I need to always be coming from a place of humility, not arrogance, not ever already knowing. So let me just give you a heads up to, your, to any listeners who may need this heads up. When we say I was taught to treat everyone the same, trust me, people of color do not think, oh, this is a down white person. They're rolling their eyes, okay? When we say I'm an ally, well, maybe a way to put it is when a man says to me I'm a feminist, the bubble over my head is I will be the judge of that. And honestly, if you were a feminist, you probably wouldn't need to tell me. Uh, you could demonstrate that in a nice, relaxed way, and I'd figure it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, yeah, and I think as you know, as queer people, I think we have a, a felt sense of that, especially when because we have people coming to us saying, "I'm an ally. I want to speak for your community. I want to, you know, all of that." And I know my internal felt sense of that is automatically like, "Wait a second, like <laughs> I don't." I don't know you. I don't know what your motivation is. I don't. Yeah. Right. Right. And so again, it, 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 there's this incredible potential, but to use that identity to, to deepen one's understanding. But unfortunately, when you have the particular in a, intersection of middle to upper class, cisgender male and queer, you do get some arrogance, right? You can get some arrogance. And that is a kind of a deadly combination. Um, the other thing is this idea that since I'm queer, it's okay for me to be sexist, misogynist, or racist. So you'll see it in ads, in quote-unquote, the preferences. I, I have had a couple of gay male friends and i and i um i'm older and so i i i am i tend to use the term gay and it's kind of the i was socialized into that umbrella term yeah um and one in particular was had a drinking problem and whenever he would get drunk he would just molest me i don't know how else to say it i mean hands all over my body and while it was really uncomfortable and i'd wiggle around and try to get out from under it there was a way that for years I just kind of accepted it because he was gay. So therefore, it didn't count. And now I realize, well, I i don't know why that came out of you when you were drinking, but it still seems to be based in misogyny. And there's no way the cisgender, queer, white men don't internalize misogyny. So again, we're not, we're not free of these things. And our task is to use our intersections to figure out how they may have set us up to collude in someone else's oppression. And I know you probably have some thoughts about the, the preferences. You probably understand how that might manifest more than I do. Yeah. So, um, yeah, abso- I- absolutely. And I think in a later episode, I'm going to be talking with some people specifically around that, about racism among gay men, particularly. Um, but that, that idea of calling it preference in, in our dating apps or, or whatever, uh, w- and I think I think some of us genuinely believe that it's a preference, and yet 
it's a function of whiteness as well. Yeah, I don't believe there's any pure pure preference, right? Right. Um, that the messages, I'm not going to speak to you as a woman, the, the ideal, the signifier of ideal beauty is white. The signifier of ideal humanity is white. Um, and so those things shape how we see one another. Um, and then you've got some really problematic ways that white supremacy sets up groups of color in relationship to one another. So what are the stereotypes, the racist stereotypes about Asian heritage people? And why might you then have a preference for Asian heritage people, right? It's not pure. It can't be pure because you it cannot be separated from what we're taught that Asian is or means. Otherwise, Asian has no meaning, right? If I tell you I'm a woman, it can't have any meaning without the concept of a man, right? They're always in relationship, you know, a woman is not a man, right? Um, so, So it doesn't mean that your listeners should all be going, okay, I'm totally racist, but you know, you do need to be willing to grapple with it and own it a little bit and push on it a little bit. Because if you were purely in a, I see everyone equally, you wouldn't have a preference, right? Um, you would, people would come in different packages. <laughs> um, that That's what I think anyway. But even if you do have, a, I might say, well, I'm not, a, there are certain preferences that are socially legitimate. If I say to you, I don't like um, uh, large bodied people. Um, that's very socially legitimate, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not a prejudice that has come from the relentless contempt that has, circulates around me for, for fat people, right? So I, 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 probably, I may not be able to change my preference, but I, it would behoove me to grapple with it. Yeah, and you know, I don't know how this works with queer, queer pornography or gay pornography. Um, I can tell you that in, in heterosexual mainstream pornography, which is consumed by, what, 90-plus percent uh, of, of men, heterosexual men, um, let's just hold that for a, woman, for a moment and not talk about women's consumption, but, it, but mainstream heterosexual pornography is geared towards the male gaze. I think we can agree on that. And even though it's ubiquitous and consumed you know, beyond any probably other form of internet activity, it's also not talked about. And so the narratives run unchecked. And if you just want to see patriarchy, misogyny, and racism, just look at heterosexual mainstream porn Um, because it's jaw-droppingly explicit in a way it would never be in something that was public, right? I actually write about this in my book. So, again, I don't know what it looks like – in gay porn, but if you look at the narratives and the way people are described and who's in what position and who gets fetishized in what ways, it, it, it may be worth looking at uh, there too. And I, I don't know, would you say that there's a I would imagine is oh yeah, absolutely. I think it's yeah. I, I would imagine it's probably just the same, if not worse. Um, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how does that not shape your preference, right? right. It's so relentless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to wrap up, for white people who are listening to this who 
are sitting here like, oh, well, what can I do? Mm-hmm. How can I work on myself? How do I even begin to start doing this work beyond? Because I think so often we can we can hear all of this and then just kind of sit in, oh, I feel really guilty or <laughs> I feel I feel bad for being white. Um, mm-hmm. What are ways to move out of that guilt and into more productive work around this? We'll start with the question of how does that function? So when white people feel so bad and so guilty that we become immobilized, how does that function? I mean, that's pretty much all I have to ask, right? It functions beautifully to exempt and to uphold the current situation and certainly our positions and our privilege within it. So while it's natural to feel some guilt, um, the behavior it drives is what what you really want to look at. And and so if that guilt, I'll, I'll be honest, back to our opening, I was raised Catholic, and guilt guilt motivates me. Uh, it does motivate me, and I can't sleep at night, and I can't live it with myself if I can't look at myself in the eyes and you know say no, I wasn't silent today, right? Um, so if it's if it's something that you move through or able to move through, then yes. But if, if it's immobilizing you or it's your excuse, uh, no, you can't indulge in it. It's, you know, <laughs> narcissistic and self-indulgent. Yeah. Okay. Um, another key point is remember the good, the good, bad binary. It is not an either or. It is not good, bad. It is a inevitable function of the society we're in. So you are not bad, but you do have to own and take responsibility for this reality. There is no neutral place and inaction is a form of action. So the default is the reproduction of racial inequality. And if I do, it depends on nothing more than white people just being really nice and friendly to people of color and concerned and carrying on and you will uphold it. Niceness is not courageous. Niceness will not get racism on the table, right? So um, you and I both know, your listeners can go, hmm, that was interesting, that was provocative, or she said this one thing and that's why I reject the whole thing, right? There's many, many ways that we can excuse us uh, ourselves from having to grapple with uh, uncomfortable issue, right? But I want to reiterate, again, there just really is no neutral, no neutral place, right? Howard Zinn is, you know, on a moving train. Okay. Um, and I also need to say there's nothing more transformative or liberating. It, it's the most fantastically stimulating intellectually, emotionally, psycholo- psychologically, spiritually. This is the deepest, most intellectually stimulating work I've ever done in my life, Um uh, if I'm not lo- learning, growing, and stretching, I personally don't really know what the point of my life is. Um, and uh, the growth edge wasn't in my focus on my oppression because I, I already had focus there. The growth edge for me is, oh, my God, how am I holding somebody else's? And it, it's hard and it's painful, but it's so transformative and liberating. And then you can begin to build those relationships, right? And then maybe the last thing is to to break with whiteness is actually to take the initiative to find out what to do, right? So if you're if you're white and you're listening and maybe like that day that you went to, and I bet it was a Caprice yes. Holland's uh-huh. workshop, uh-huh. 
and you're like, oh my God, I've never thought about this before. And then from that place, you also expected her to hand you the answer. One, that that probably wasn't going to be effective. And two, uh, you aren't going to like the answer because it isn't going to be easy. It's going to be transform your freaking very identity, right? I mean, this is not easy. It's not a do this today and you're done. So to break with whiteness is to break with the apathy and inertia of racial privilege and whiteness and get on the internet and look it up. Because we're in a moment where there's so much fantastic information out there. If you went to the doctor and they said, oh, oh my God, you have an acoustic neuroma. Um, Oops, I got an emergency. I have to go. What would you do? Go home and Google the shit out of acoustic neuromas. You'd want to know every angle. You'd get on these blogs because you cared, right? And so you, you would be driven to find out and to research and to inform yourself, right? And so I, I will end by offering that question back to your white listeners in this form. What about your life? has enabled you to not know what to do about racism? How have you gotten to be a full, educated, professional adult and you don't know what to do about racism and you've yet to seek out that answer? Why is that your question? Um, And your answer to that question will map out, right? You weren't educated? Well, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. You probably weren't raised to... um, know what to do about uh, transphobia either. Right, yeah. (laughs) Or uh, heterosexism or homophobia, but damn, you cared enough to find out and you sure in a heck wish your family would care enough to find out, correct? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's on you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, it's beautiful, beautiful work. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. To find out more about Dr. D'Angelo's work, check out her book, What Does It Mean to Be White? And be sure to keep an eye out for her new book coming out this summer, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. You can head over to her website, robindangelo.com. Querology is on Twitter and Instagram at QuerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Quirology is produced with support from Natalie England and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Quirology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to do that is by leaving a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out. Tell me what you want to hear about on Quirology. I'll get back to you. Until next week, y'all. I will have a real voice. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.